Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Now, Mary Kissel. Global currency markets are wobbly. Is Pakistan the next crisis or will Beijing step in to save the day? And more information on the extraordinarily horrific political crackdown in China's Xinjiang province. Welcome to Foreign Edition. I'm Mary Kissel at the Wall Street Journal editorial board, buffeted but not broken by a migraine today. Hugo Restall, my friend and colleague on the editorial board, stops for no man, so I hauled myself in for him. Hugo, joining from an undisclosed location in Asia Pacific. Hello, Hugo. Hi, Mary. It's great great to be with you, and sorry to hear about your migraine. Well, it happens. Lots to think about, and we are thinking about markets today. Uh, very, very jittery. A lot of reaction to the Trump administration's financial sanctions on Iran and threatened sanctions on Turkey. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, emerging market currencies tumbling, the ruble, the rial, the lira. But you are thinking about Pakistan. Why? Yep. Oh, I think this is another potential clash. If I could set the scene a little bit, I mean, Pakistan is a country that's been in financial trouble many, many times, and it's it's facing another crunch at the moment. Its foreign exchange reserves have dwindled. And uh, at this point, it would normally go to the IMF for a bailout package. But the new parliament faces a fight between the U.S. and China over how to deal with this crisis. Essentially, Pakistan has saddled itself with a lot of... Uh, Chinese debt to pay for the these extravagant uh, infrastructure projects under the umbrella of something called the CPEC. It's uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And uh, that has contributed to the uh, to the crisis. And the U.S. is expressing reluctance to approve uh, an IMF deal that would essentially bail out Beijing for these loans that it has uh, saddled Pakistan with. At this point, the new government has to make a decision about uh, whether it will go to the IMF and accede to American demands that it uh, reveal all the terms of the uh, loans from Beijing, or whether it will try instead go to Beijing for a bailout and, and essentially go down the road of becoming more of a, a satellite of, of China. Well, you know, a lot to unpack here, but at its at its core, Hugo, it sounds like just two fundamentally different approaches to using uh, uh, economic policy as a tool of foreign policy. The United States, the West. Uh, trying to go in and open up nations like Pakistan, reform them, uh, improve their institutions and their rule of law, liberalize the markets um, so that uh, they can stand on their own and become prosperous on their own. And that's worked in a lot of places in Asia. Uh, you know, Think of the Asian tigers and how they developed in the 90s, places like Thailand or Taiwan, even Korea. Um, but on the other hand, you have China using uh, economic development as a tool, I, I think, and maybe I'm going too far here, uh, as a tool of oppression where they hook uh, countries like Pakistan on debt, get them to build ports at Gwadar and build big bridges and roads. 
that they can afford and they may not need just to to link them to Beijing, to make them dependent, Hugo. Am I overstating this? No, I think that's exactly right. And the U.S. US officials have been uh, forthright about saying that this is a new form of, uh, of economic imperialism um, being practiced by China. I mean, it's, it's been called debt trap diplomacy. Um, essentially, days, uh, the U.S. had a lot of leverage to um, when it gave a, an IMF bailout package to ask countries to undertake structural reforms. And countries have a, another option, which is to go to Beijing and avoid those tough reforms. And that benefits the corrupt officials, but it hurts the ordinary people of the country in the long run because the reforms don't get done and the country is mortgaged to Beijing and uh, has to give up its, uh, its strategic assets. The classic example here is Sri Lanka, mm. uh, which in recent years... It took $6 billion in, in debt from China to build this incredible port and airport complex, Tota, which has received very little traffic, uh, both at the airport and the port. And so the country has was unable to uh, service the debt and had to turn over the facilities to China on a 99-year lease. And uh, so China has now got a, a strategic port on the Indian Ocean, and uh, Sri Lanka is still saddled with, with a lot of debt to, to China. So what, what we want to avoid is Pakistan going down that path. The question is, what's the best way to do it? Yeah, well, let me read you a, a quote uh, from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo late last month, commenting on the situation. He said, quote, there's no rationale for IMX, IMF tax dollars and associated with that American dollars that are part of the IMF funding for those to go to bail out Chinese bondholders or China itself, end quote. So, Hugo, uh, Mike Pompeo, the Trump administration, they're accountable to American taxpayers and American voters. And so Pompeo is essentially saying, I'm not going to go bail you out, Islamabad, if you're taking money from our uh, enemy in Beijing, sorry, strategic competitor, whoops. Um, and and so, you know, if China wants to make these kinds of investments, they're going to have to suffer the consequences if those investments go bust. But, you know, Hugo, it, 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 if that isn't accompanied by a second uh, push, in other words, I think Mike Pompeo is essentially pushing him into Beijing's hands unless the United States can tempt Pakistan into our orbit in some other fashion. Right. I think that's that's the crucial point you've, you've put your finger on. We don't want to absolutely cut off Pakistan. We want to use our leverage to um, ensure that Pakistan does make some changes. One of the key demands, as I said, is that uh, we want Pakistan to publish the terms of the loans that is taken from China. The Wall Street Journal did some very good reporting where it, it publicized the terms of some loans to Pakistan for power plant. The repayment terms were absolutely outrageous. I mean, Pakistan has to pay a very high rate of interest to to China, as high as 34 percent on one of these uh, power plants. And it has to uh, pay it back in dollars. So there's no currency risk for the Chinese. So if the Pakistani people knew about the terms of these loans, um, it's a safe bet that uh, the they would uh, be very upset and uh, possibly change the trajectory of, of Pakistan's relationship with China. And 
that uh, that can pave the way for a new IMF bailout and um, you know a more more reasonable um, terms for for um, you know going forward with Pakistan's uh, economic reforms. Well, I, yeah, the other question too is what happens in the domestic political environment in Pakistan because the incoming prime minister Imran Khan. Uh, is kind of an iconoclast, um, more inclined to lean toward China. But, you know, there are still opposition parties there. The Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz, the Pakistan People's Party, and a distant third. Um, Hugo, by no means is there unanimity there within the country. Right. And Imran Khan is a very mercurial uh, character. So it, it's impossible to predict which way he would jump on this. Um, you know, I I think if Pakistan did fall into China's orbit, there would be problems long term because Pakistani nationalists, you know, would not welcome uh, the country becoming essentially a vassal state of, of China. No, they certainly wouldn't. We're talking about Pakistan and you're listening to Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Drive time, gym time, anytime. Podcasts from the Wall Street Journal. Check out all our shows at wsj.com slash podcasts. That's wsj.com slash podcasts. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Now, Mary Kissel. Welcome back. Mary in New York with Hugo Restall somewhere out there in an undisclosed location in Asia Pacific. And we're turning to another murky locale. China's Xinjiang province in the northwestern part of China. It's home to a large ethnically uh, Muslim population, the Uyghurs, Muslim minority rather. Um, And we're hearing reports of internment camps, uh, Chinese internment camps to, quote, uh, re-educate this population to be more loyal to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, We've done a couple of podcasts on this subject within the last several months But the crackdown has intensified, and we thought it would be worth bringing you the latest news uh, from this, frankly, tragedy that I think the world should be paying far more attention to. Hugo, what's the latest? Well, uh, we're getting more information about the conditions in these camps uh, where essentially Muslims are being detained en masse, as many as a million at a time. That's uh, almost 10 percent of the uh, Uyghur population in in Xinjiang and also Kazakhs, ethnic Kazakhs who are a smaller minority. A few of them have, uh, after they were released from the camps, have have managed to flee abroad and have talked to journalists and scholars about the conditions there. Essentially, they face morning to night brainwashing sessions in which they're forced to chant uh, patriotic slogans, renounce Islam, say how foolish they were to have, have believed in the Quran, and anyone who who resists, you know, faces uh, physical abuse, torture, solitary confinement. And so this has started to have, um, as this information has come out, it started to provoke an international reaction. Some uh, U.S. lawmakers have have spoken out on this. We had Marco Rubio writing on our pages uh, last Friday. From the great state um, of Florida, the the senator senator from the great state of Florida. Yes, of course. Uh, 
calling for sanctions on the Chinese officials who are responsible for this under, uh, you know, a similar arrangement to the Key Act for, for Russia. You know, this is this is all extremely positive. But, uh, you know, as we've discussed before, the level of oppression and, and surveillance in Xinjiang is just incredible. These are, you know, measures that China under Xi Jinping is, is starting to roll out in the rest of the country as well, um, which should uh, make us very concerned about the dark path that uh, China is going down. And, you know, Xinjiang never got the attention, Hugo, that Tibet had, because I, I feel like Tibet had the Dalai Lama and it had international attention because you had this very um, sympathetic, uh, wonderful man. Uh, I've met him um, many years ago in uh, exile in India. Um, who could talk about Tibet and the, the the oppression there and really rally people to the cause. Of course, there were celebrities attached to that. Uh, Richard Gere comes to mind. But Xinjiang never had an advocate like that, even though it suffered um, many of the same uh, kinds of repression that the Tibetans suffered. Um, and notable, too, Hugo, that Beijing seems to be snapping up anybody who could potentially step into that role. I noted in our editorial, by the way, there is an editorial titled The Repression of the Uyghurs. It's just out. It's up on WSJ.com. Go find it. Uh, I'd note in that editorial, a very prominent academic uh, has been missing now since December. We're only now learning um, of this uh, mystery of what's happened to her. Uh, so it looks like China has learned from the Tibetan experience, and they'll just take anybody who they think could step into that international role as a kind of a symbolic um, spokesperson for that population, and they're just, they're just going to lock them up. Right. There was an academic, Uyghur academic in Beijing, Ilam Toti, who was a similar situation, a very moderate voice. He was uh, sentenced to several years in prison. So you're absolutely right that China is um, taking out any anyone who could be a spokesman for the Uyghur people. And the saddest thing, I think, is that Islamic countries are not speaking up for the Uyghurs. Um, in the past, uh, Turkey would occasionally... Um, make some noises, but uh, no longer. And uh, be essentially because of economic uh, concerns and, and not wanting to anger Beijing, uh, nobody is speaking out forcefully on, on behalf of the Uyghur people. Hugo, what can be done here? You, you mentioned um, Florida Senator Marco Rubio and others, uh, even the United Nations, is starting to make noises and, and complain about this uh, call for an investigation and more information to be made public. Um, but you have in the White House an administration that uh, sometimes speaks up on behalf of human rights. Let's let's give them their due. Um, there is a ambassador for religious freedom, Sam ba Brownback, in the State Department, who's been doing heroic work on behalf of oppressed religious minorities. Um, we have a, a commission on religious freedom uh, that often writes for our op-ed pages uh, that speaks out. Uh, but... You know, what about having the president say something uh, uh, or, or the vice president, but preferably Trump, because his words would would have meaning and they would be heard within China. Uh, he'd be speaking over the Chinese leadership uh, to the oppressed people of China. Um, you know, are there plans to do that? Have you heard any noises about that from the administration? I have not. The State Department has, has made some noises about the possibility of, of sanctions on individual officials. I should say Mike Pence 
did make uh, a few remarks condemning uh, China's treatment of, of the Uyghurs uh, some time back, but it has not been uh, done in a very high-profile manner. Clearly, human rights have been downgraded since uh, since the Obama administration to basically the lowest priority in the in the U.S.-China relationship. And I think it's it is time that th- that was corrected and and human rights were brought back to a higher position um, and were mentioned, you know, at every opportunity when when the relationship is is broached um, and when officials go to China or Chinese officials come to the U.S. Some academics are talking about a uh, Xinjiang pledge, which is that, uh, you know, all academics who deal with China, um, when they give public remarks, they will uh, they will say preface their remarks with uh, with a, a, a few sentences about the oppression in Xinjiang um, to uh, to, you know, bring that to light and and combat the tendency towards self-censorship, which is uh, is also very prevalent in the academic world. So it, it, yeah. these kinds of measures could, it, be, it, could be helpful. And as you say, Hugo, we're not talking about human rights um, just for human rights sake, although, of course, I, you know, I am a bleeding heart liberal when it comes to, to things like this. It's true. Um, I, I believe everyone has um, has rights as an individual, as a human being. Um, but we're talking about it because it it tells you something very important about the nature of the regime in Beijing that the United States is dealing with. Um, you know, they can they can talk all they want about a peaceful rise, but if they can't trust their own citizens, and if they're doing this to their own citizens, then how can we ever trust them to keep their word to us? And, uh, you know, I, I love that idea of the academic pledge because, as you say, the the urge to self-censorship is is high. In almost every community that touches China, if you're a business person, you need a license. Uh, if you're a journalist, you need a visa to get into regions like this. If you're an academic, you need permission to get into archives. So there are a lot of uh, levers that the Communist Party can pull to kind of try to manipulate people into keeping quiet. Um, but it's very important that we don't. Yeah, and, and recognize the, the nature of the Xi Jinping regime. I mean, countries that put their minority peoples into what are essentially concentration camps inevitably uh, will also try to foment nationalism to uh, against external enemies as well. And that uh, leads to foreign adventurism and aggression against their neighbors. Um, and we see that with the Xi Jinping regime flexing its muscles in the South China Sea and, and encroaching on the rights of, of the other uh, countries in that that region. So uh, we cannot just be complacent that uh, this these kinds of abuses will be confined to uh, domestic uh, targets. This kind of regime will inevitably um, become aggressive as well. Well, that's an appropriately gloomy note to end on, as we are wont to do on Foreign Edition. So let's stop there. Uh, all my thanks to Hugo Restall out there in Asia. Thanks for joining, Hugo. And on behalf of me, Mary Kissel, please email us and tweet to us, preferably tweet to us, at Mary Kissel and at Hugo Restall. We read every single thing you send to us. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you on Wednesday. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.